As I listened to the radio this morning, one of the few programmes that aired on BBC, um, there was, uh, they were highlighting an interview with Mikel Arteta, the Arsenal manager, and he was reflecting on the celebrations of their victory last week. They were 2-0 down, they beat, I can't remember who they beat, but they won 3-2, scored a last-minute winner. They were getting some criticism um, because they were emphatic when they scored and they were getting a little bit criticised for their overindulgence and emotion. And I found this fascinating as I drove in this morning. And they quoted Mikel Arteta. And Mikel Arteta said, if you want to see no form of emotion, go to church. Ouch. And I thought, do you know, and I mentioned that because as we come to this passage, this is a really hard read. I feel this morning. What I'm going to do, I haven't done this yet in John, but we're going to read three gospel accounts because we're not going to read Mark because it mirrors Matthew, but we're going to read John, we're going to read Matthew, and we're going to read Luke because together they bring us this most incredible picture of this Garden of Gethsemane. So we're going to read from John chapter 18 and verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook, of Kid, uh, the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Matthew chapter 26. We're going to read the sections uh, before his confrontation with, Ju uh, with Judas because we don't have these conversations documented in John's gospel. So we're going to read 10 verses from Matthew 26 verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour. 
Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away, and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And Luke chapter 22, seven verses from verse 39. And he came and went out as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down in prayer saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Lord's word for us this morning. For the first time since the 23rd of October, we are no longer in the upper room. I wonder what struck you in the time we've spent in the room. I wonder if it is the depth of the love of our Lord Jesus for his disciples, his humility in washing their feet, for his grace in warning them of the trials that would come. Or maybe it's been the rich theology of the last few weeks of the Holy Spirit. It has been wonderful. We were reflecting on that as a growth group on Wednesday. How much of a joy we'd found these last few weeks. Taking that time and exploring the person of the Holy Spirit. This morning I simply want to do one thing. I want to show you from the garden the Lordship of Jesus Christ in Gethsemane. I'm going to show you this in the garden in his confrontation and in his endurance. When we come to that final point, I'm going to pick up on um, the dialogue before the betrayal from Matthew and Luke, because I think it fits wonderfully with this point of endurance. I want to show you this morning that Gethsemane was no tragedy, but that it was ordained, planned, and executed by God himself. Lordship simply means supreme rule, sovereignty, authority, reign. So when we talk of the lordship of Jesus Christ in the garden, we are talking about the utter supremacy of Christ at what looks like his most utterly vulnerable moment. And my hope is that through this, our hearts are warmed, that through the chaos of Gethsemane, we would see the miraculous and we would just see the supremacy of our Lord Jesus. If this was a children's talk, I'd ask you a question. And the question would be, where else in the Bible do we read of a garden? Of course, we read of a garden way back in the beginning, Genesis chapter 2. 
We're introduced to a garden that the Lord planted in Eden. And I want to draw some comparisons because I think there is a deliberate symbolism and a deliberate importance between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus and his disciples set off across the Kidron Valley. Can you put up that white picture, Paul? I put it a few slides down, but I'm going to use it just now. Yeah, we'll start with this one. Jesus is coming from within Jerusalem, the temple's up here, and he's going to the Mount of Olives. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, um, you've got to take every historical site with a pinch of salt. But there's a wonderfully, beautifully gated garden with some lovely paths that claims to be the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe that is the location, maybe not, but I'm assuming it didn't look quite as nice in those days. So what you see is they made this journey across this deep valley, the Kidron Valley. If you've ever tried to walk it, it is an absolute mission from one side to the other. It is steep. And to the next picture, please, Paul. So John mentions that, that, that Jesus goes across this valley, a couple of hundred feet below the temple. You see, there's a drain where you see the blood drainage there. There is a drain that comes from the temple that would drain the blood of the sacrifices. Now remember, this is Passover. This is Passover. This place is packed. There's people everywhere. And at this time of year, there's more than 2,000 lambs slaughtered in the temple. And their drainage, the blood drains straight through. The, dra uh, the blood drains into the Kidron Valley where we read our Lord Jesus crossed. This valley red with the sacrifice of blood. And I was captured by this image of our Lord Jesus walking over the blood of the temple sacrifices. Because it is that sacrifice he is here to fulfill. And it is that sacrifice that once and for all he is here to give. 2,000 lambs once a year. A powerful picture. But even at the beginning of just this walk, we see the lordship of the Lord Jesus. We see that the Lord Jesus, just in this rich symbolism, crosses through the blood of these temporary sacrifices to offer a once and for all. Jesus chose Gethsemane. We know that. It says that. He was frequent there. Jesus deliberately chose it. It was an olive grove. Uh, Gethsemane can also mean oil press. Um, and, and, and the writers tell us that it's commonplace for Jesus and his friends to go. Jesus would go alone. He would retreat and pray with the Father as he does consistently throughout his ministry. But he also would go with his friends. If he was trying to hide from the one that would betray him, the worst possible place I think he could go would be this wide open space that his friend knew he went to. Judas knew that he would be there. And Judas knew that this was the perfect place to confront Jesus. See, a small room in a packed Jerusalem could throw up all sorts of issues. You fancy trying to send in these dozens of officers and soldiers into this small room to go and arrest Jesus. You imagine all carnage would break loose. But a quiet garden with no one around sounds like the perfect place for an arrest. And Gethsemane was deliberately chosen by Jesus. Open, quiet, exposed on all angles. And we have, we come to this garden. You see that first garden, that garden of Eden was a perfect place. It was a place that was pleasant to sight. 
Everything that was there was good for food. It was a glorious place. A river ran through it. Animals, livestock, birds, beasts, and the first two people. Idyllic. A place where God himself walked with man, we are told. Heaven on earth, literally. But a place where there is one forbidden tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Ignore that, listen to me, eat everything else. Just don't touch this one. So we come then with two men and two gardens. I'm not trying to make this fit, by the way. I'm not trying to force a comparison here. We read 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, uh, verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. We have the first Adam. We have the last Adam. And you see, in Eden, God walked with man. And in Gethsemane, too, God walked with man. But here it is in the person of the Lord Jesus. Two gardens, one man walking with God, and in the other, God walking with man. What happened in this garden? Adam started his life in his garden, and Jesus would come at the end of his life in Gethsemane. What happened there? Adam sinned. Adam fell well short of the glory of God. He was tempted, he gave in, and he sinned. What did Jesus do when he came to that garden? Well, he did the complete opposite. He overcame. This, of course, was no walk in the park for our Lord Jesus. We've seen in our passages this morning the utter despair of our Savior. But he is so desperate to comfort his followers. He's as he comes into this garden, as he knows for well what lies ahead of him, this anguish now intensifies. The cross was always on his mind. He knew his purposes, but now there is nothing else in front of it because it is now here. Luke tells us our Savior is in agony, so much so that he sweat drops of blood. The, era, the reality that soon he would come to take the sin from Adam until he would return again is now very real. The weight that lays upon our Lord Jesus is unbearable and it is agonizing. And it is imminent. Three times, Father, is there another way? Father, take this cup from me. He falls flat on his face before his father, doesn't he? Please let this cup pass me by any other way. But all of that in the context of not my will, but yours. Jesus overcame in that garden. He overcame the weight of sin and shame for you and for me. Genesis 3.8, then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. What does Adam do when sin is exposed in front of a holy and a righteous God? He does the only thing that a sinful man can do. He hides. God hasn't even said anything. He's just there. His presence is just there. And the mere presence of God is enough to send Adam hiding, knowing that he has created, uh, that he has committed a great offense against God. 
And now Adam, aware of his sin, recognizing his sinfulness before God, is utterly humiliated. Do you know, in, in an eternal sense, for those that don't believe, this is the same. You spend your life running from God, denying God, hiding God, because the veil of sin is so great. But I think so too, there is something for us here as believers. How often is our response not to come back before the Lord Jesus in repentance, but to hide from God, to deny our sin, to suppress our sin, or even worse than that, to try and distort the very word of God, to try and tell ourselves that our sin just isn't that bad. The response of a sinful man in front of God is to hide, to ignore, to deny. Adam's first thought wasn't repentance, it was rejection. And so the Lord Jesus is confronted with sin. Here is Judas, here is this crowd. What does Jesus do? Jesus walks in front of them and Jesus says, I am he. In the face of sinfulness that would take him to the cross, the Lord Jesus says, here I am. I am why you have come. You see, this symbolism in this garden isn't accidental or incidental, but it is an assurance for us as readers generations later that the Lord Jesus is in control. Don Carson said, in the first garden, not your will but mine changed paradise to desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, not my will but yours brings anguish to the man who prays it but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. Wonderful words. Secondly, and more briefly, the Lord Jesus' confrontation. From verse four, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Jesus, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. This crowd arrives, led by Jesus. Matthew tells us it's a big crowd. Mark tells us it's a multitude. Roman soldiers, officials, Pharisees, Judas. This is a nasty bunch of people. This would be, I think this group is probably dozens strong. And they approach the disciples and notice who steps forward. Notice that these disciples that have all this courage and can talk a good talk in the upper room, where are they now? It is Jesus who steps forward. Why are you here? Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. We're here for Jesus. And we have the betrayer in front of Jesus, a crowd baying for his blood, a crowd that's only intention was for Jesus and his disciples to crucify them. All they wanted was death and destruction for this man Jesus and his friends. All they wanted to do was destroy the greatest thing that ever happened to this world. And we remember Adam hid. Adam hides from sinfulness, but in the face of sin before holy God, Jesus stands and is counted. Jesus stands and says, I am he. 
swords, lanterns, lamps, being for his blood. This is light in the darkness right here. This is it visually in picture form for us. Jesus standing in front of the betrayer. And something utterly miraculous happens in response. They drew back and they fell to the ground. They didn't fall down when they asked him a question, but they fell down at his response of, I am he. Of course, we have encountered the I am statements. We've encountered the I am he. When Jesus calmed the storm, the the burning bush of Exodus 3, we've been there. We're not going to cover that. But the armed crowds heard this. They fell to the ground and they retreated. You see, what we have here is two groups of utterly terrified people. We have some terrified disciples. You can imagine the fear that would engulf them, can't you? You can imagine walking in that garden with your friend and this crowd comes towards you. But I think the group that were more afraid than the disciples was this crowd that was with Judas. Because they could have outnumbered Jesus a thousand to one, but they were scared nonetheless. You remember in John 7, from verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? That's Jesus. The officers said, no one has spoke, no one ever spoke like this man. You see, the unbelieving officers in John chapter 7 couldn't get this. They could not grasp who Jesus was and they couldn't arrest them. They couldn't do it. But they were staggered by this man. And if that was enough, as he taught in the temple courts, if that was enough to stagger them, how much more so standing in front of him as he declares, I am God, on a mountainside in the middle of the night, faced by a massive crowd. I think what's happening here is their bodies are reacting to the divine truth of the divinity of the man that is standing in front of them in a way that their minds just cannot comprehend. They literally fall to their knees as he proclaims, I am he. And what's fascinating in that situation is actually they're not arresting Jesus. Jesus is arresting them. He's speaking to them. He is working out his plans and his purposes. The soldiers aren't in control of this situation at all. Yet their hearts would not respond in the ways that their bodies did. They wouldn't believe. Their hearts were hardened. And instead they would carry on and continue with the arrest. From verse 7, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, that's his disciples, I have lost none. Faced with this massive crowd, Jesus manages to get his friends off the hook. Because Jesus protects his followers as promised. Martin Luther believed that Jesus' protection of his disciples was the greatest miracle of Gethsemane because it is miraculous. You see, twice he asks them, who are you looking for? And twice they said, Jesus of Nazareth. You see, he narrows their vision here. He narrows his vision away from this big crowd straight down to Jesus. So his request at this point to let the disciples go seems quite reasonable. Remember those words of John 10. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. You see, even in the midst of the garden, in the midst of this confrontation with this evil personified in this crowd in front of him, our Lord is sovereign. The Lordship of our Savior is seen. And finally, in his endurance from verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? <coughs> Matthew 26, 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There was no other way. 2,000 lambs sacrificed by the priest at the temple was not enough. Nothing was enough to satisfy the wrath of the Father. You see, of course, as Jesus speaks of the cup, the cup represents the wrath of God. And as we looked, as we gathered around the table, by going to the cross, Jesus takes this cup of condemnation of which we all deserve to drink, and he drinks it. He drinks every single last drop of it. The wonderful news that if you drink of the cup of the new covenant here and you know and love the Lord Jesus, there is not but one drop of the cup of condemnation left for you because he took it upon himself. Hallelujah. It is the reality that the death of the Lord Jesus is sufficient for us to cover a multitude of sins. He the sinless Savior, bearing divine wrath, which rightly falls upon us. He took upon himself for those he came to save. Slightly later, we read of a, just this fascinating section in Matthew 26, 53, as we think of endurance. We're told Jesus could have called 12 legions of angels sent by the Father to rescue him. If a legion is five, 6,000, then we are talking tens of thousands of angels here. How much power do angels have? Well, of course, in Second Kings, one angel put to death 185,000 Assyrians. That is the power of but one angel. What is the power of these tens of thousands that the Lord Jesus could have called here? All Jesus had to do was say a word. All Jesus had to do was say a word, and these tens of thousands of angels would de de descend upon him, would have defended him, would have taken him from there. And the funny thing is, there's not one thing any of us could have done to blame him. There is not one thing we could have done here if Jesus at this point have said, they're not worth it. There's nothing we could have done, nothing we could have said of any note that could have made the Lord Jesus go to the cross. There is but nothing, friends, worthy in us of what our Lord Jesus is doing here. But he did it. Just a breath and these angels would have descended. But he didn't do it. He endured. Why? Because he loves you and he hates sin. Because he cares greatly for you. And he went to atone for your sin. You see, the surroundings of the arrest of our Lord Jesus 
display for us our sovereign control, his sovereign control, the intensity of his, his agony, his utter determination, his resolve to bear it, the control that he has over his captors, the protection of his own, and he even had a bit of grace in there to put the poor guy's ear back on. Jesus was in complete control when everything looked like it was caving in around him. I think, friends, as we come to understand the immensity of who the Lord Jesus is, of his lordship, his knowledge, his power, we begin to grasp why Jesus came. We begin to realize what he continues to do for us day by day in the forgiveness of our sins and the drawing us close. What does it mean? How does all of this relate to us? Christ's experience at Gethsemane is beyond human experience. It is beyond human comprehension. We cannot fathom from Adam till Christ returns what that as sin looks like and feels like. And thank goodness, because my own sin is enough to even attempt to try and bear. But we all have Gethsemanes as part of our lives. All of us have times of ultimate struggle, of stress and of pain, when the cup seems just too much to bear. We all have times when, to the unbelieving eye, we are caught up in the mercilessness of life and we are utterly powerless. But there is one who stands in the middle of that garden and he says, I am he. And he says, I will bear your cup. You see, Gethsemane is no tragedy and our Gethsemane experiences are no tragedy. That doesn't diminish the wounds and the pain that this life can cause us. It doesn't soften them. Jesus, because he knew what he was going on to, didn't somehow find this whole thing easier. If anything, it made it more difficult. But I want to encourage you, that as we look behind the veil of the tragedy of human history, of at times our lives, there is a wise purpose of the Lord of human history. Behind our tragedies, there is the Lordship of Jesus. And at times when things are dark, when tragedy might come, when things look like they are falling apart, when it seems like life is about to crush you, it is not the end. Because we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called to his purpose, even in Gethsemane. So we've come to the garden. We've seen the wickedness of Judas in the crowd. We're going to focus next week a little bit more on the betrayal of Judas and of Peter and really dig into this word of betrayal and what it means. We've seen the shortfallings again of Jesus' disciples, but in the middle of all this chaos and all this carnage is this beautiful life-giving saviour, utterly unique in his beauty. A warning comes with that. Be careful. Be careful if you've seen something of who Jesus is. Do not dare reject him or ignore him. Do not be like that crowd that were encountered face to face with who he is. That is dangerous ground to know and have heard the good news of the Lord Jesus yet to reject him. Do not do that. But this is just an opportunity for us to gaze upon this incredible man in the garden. So how will you leave here this morning? Will you give up your little plans and surrender them to the King of Kings? 
The Roman soldiers, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the crowd, they were blown away literally to their knees when they saw something of the majesty of Jesus, but they missed their opportunity. They got up and they rejected him and they arrested him. Will you bow to Jesus? Will you surrender your life to him? Will you know him as the king in your life? Judas and the rest, they saw it. They saw who he was right in front of them. But they would not accept the truth. They denied it and the opportunity was gone. Will you bow down to the majestic beauty of our Lord Jesus? Recognizing that he is king, that he is Lord of your life, that he is Lord of his church, that he is Lord of this world. Recognizing that he is God incarnate. You see, often the challenge isn't always surrendering, but it's continuing to surrender. It's staying surrendered. Will you let him come into all those little bits of your life, the bits that we try and compartmentalize, the bits that we try and put walls up for, the bits that we just rather God didn't see? Will you allow the beautiful presence of the living God to grow in every area of your life? Or will you trample on the evidence and walk away for a couple of pennies like Judas did? Favouring your own plans and power. Will you stand? There are only two ways that you can spend eternity, friends. You can spend it in heaven or you can spend it in hell. You can spend eternity with God or you can spend eternity with Satan. The Bible is exceptionally clear. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Those who are not in Christ will, give, will be given their heart's sinful desires. And they will spend eternity out with the Lord Jesus, with Satan as their master. But there is good news, there is great news. And his name is Jesus. You can stand on that last day. Your name written in the book of life because Jesus stood for you. And finally, will you praise him? Will you thank him continually for his grace extended to you? Will you remember that in that garden, oh, he could have walked. He could have left, but he didn't. Will you worship him? Will you offer yourself to him and say, Lord, use me? Do we acknowledge that he is the king who carried out a magnificent plan of sacrifice for me. That you are the king of everything. That you are the king we will worship in our Gethsemane experiences, in the garden at night when I'm feeling crushed because you were crushed for me. That is Gethsemane, friends. And that is the Lord Jesus who deliberately and intentionally went through what is probably the most horrific of all experiences, that is the most horrific of all experiences. He took it for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow down to your immensity. Lord, we submit ourselves to the lordship of you, 
we acknowledge that your ways are far greater than ours. We acknowledge that our plans are futile. We recognize that we are slow to come to you for forgiveness. We're even slower to forgive ourselves. Lord, we know we fall so, so far short of you. But you knew that fine well in that garden. You knew of our unfaithfulness. You knew of our unworthiness, yet you took to that cross to make a way. Lord, give us grateful hearts. Give us worshipful hearts in response to who you are and all that you have done for us. Amen.